Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 525, Fascination or Faith. How do we find the balance between proclamations and demonstrations of the gospel? Will Christians actually be judged by Jesus? And why is it that the church always seems to grow faster when it's under persecution? Well, this week, believe it or not, we're going to make it through an entire chapter of Matthew. So here we go with Matthew 11. Hello, everyone. Good to be together again on this rather lengthy journey with Matthew in his remarkable gospel. Um, up until now, uh, his gospel's been quite tightly structured. We we had those two chapters of introduction, the background to Jesus' life. Um, then we we moved into the baptism and the temptation, and then the Sermon on the Mount. This remarkable collection of teaching verses or chapters five to seven, the miracle chapters eight and nine. Uh, the missions discourse, which we we just finished going through, but now we come to a section, chapter eleven and twelve, that's not so clearly structured as the others. There's a variety of of narrative and dialogue sections, and um, there's sayings from Jesus. I think what we're going to see today is it reveals a little bit more of who is this King of Glory. But but you'll see that it's not as tightly structured. However, it's going to give us some great background to where we're going, which is chapter 13, the parable discourse. Um, so we encounter a variety of people uh, who respond in different ways uh, to what they're seeing and hearing. Uh, the, the underlying and connecting theme uh, for this section is is the basically tragic fact that uh, Jesus is rejected by the covenant people of Israel. And this is very prominent in these in these two chapters. So um we've seen Jesus coming, his word, his works, his mission, and now the really the mystery uh continuing to be uh, unveiled the mystery of his person. He's he's the promised Messiah. We're going to see that today. We're also going to see he's the coming judge, something that, that Matthew really hasn't touched on yet. And, and he's very much a present savior to those who know their need. So let's start, uh, starting at verse 1 to 6. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed, uh, his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and uh, they said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So, he's just sent out the twelve on a mission that we don't know how long it was. I've read some uh, theologians think it may have been as, lo- as long as uh, 10 weeks or even three months. Others think a couple of weeks. We don't know. But he sends them out, but he doesn't stop. He carries on himself. 
And I think even in that, there's something interesting for us to see. So John's been in prison during all of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's missed the teaching. He's missed uh, the healing. He's probably been in prison for about a year. One of the things I love about the Gospels are they are so true, they are so real. They're not two-dimensional with, with you know, cardboard cutout characters. We see a very human and very realistic picture of life. So imagine you were John the Baptist. You're alone in a prison. You must be wondering what's happened. This, this isn't the—you were the forerunner proclaiming the Messiah, and this is not at all what was expected. Now, besides just the emotional and spiritual toll on John being imprisoned, he preached a gospel of repentance and judgment. That was very much his gospel. And he spoke of God's fire several times. He anticipated that this coming one would, would come with judgment, but instead he came with good news. Jesus hadn't chastised the political powers, which John had done even to the extent that it led to his imprisonment and soon his death. Jesus wasn't changing or challenging the structural problems in Israel. All of these things led to John having doubts. You know, we are most vulnerable emotionally and spiritually, in times of isolation, especially, I think, when in times when, when the unexpected happens. When the Lord moves outside of my expectations, when I get surprised or disappointed or I don't get the result that I think I'm going to get, it's very easy for my heart to close off to the Father. So I think we can learn something from this. That and and you know I love in Psalm twenty seven in the day of trouble he will hide me in his tabernacle he'll hide me in the people of God. So he sends his disciples. Are you the coming one, the one that we were expecting? Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Very specific wording. Hearing is go tell him about the words that of the Sermon on the Mount, and seeing the miracles of chapter 8 and 9. It's exposure to both the words and the works of Jesus that brings faith. Um, And John had been exposed to neither of these, because so shortly after he announced the coming of Messiah, he was imprisoned. So, Jesus, I see great kindness in this. There's no rebuke. There's no tell John he needs to have more faith. There's a kindness. And and he sends the disciples back with this report. Tell them what you see. Tell them what you hear. You know, we need to expose people to both of these. The, The words of the gospel and the demonstration. They are, I think, really the only way to to faith. When I was pastoring, and some of you know that that we planted and pastored a, a number of churches over the decades, I always, I always made sure that the gospel was 
was presented at some point in my teaching in that there was always a demonstration of the gospel every week in church. I think this is so important because, because that's how faith is established. And then he says to them, tell, tell them what you see and hear, the, the, the blind see, the lame walk, etc. And then the, the last phrase, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Good news to the poor is a sign of the kingdom, uh, of Jesus' messiahship. Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus was comfortable with, spent time with, brought good news to the poor. We need to do likewise. Now, all this gospel activity, blind ears or blind eyes, deaf ears, um, lame walking, this was foreseen by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, in chapter 35, 5 and 6, he said this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the, the tongue of the dumb sing. It's as though Jesus was sending a, a coded message to John. Um, he was saying, this is it, John. What you, what you proclaimed, what you predicted, it's it. These signs, these signs, you, you'll know these are the signs of the kingdom. The messianic age has broken in, John. The, the kingdom of heaven is here. You were not wrong when you said the kingdom is here, which he said in chapter three. Jesus knew that John would recognize the signs of the kingdom. So that's why it was a little bit of a coded message. Are you the coming one? Are you Messiah? And he says, tell him what you see, because what you see points to me. Um, now, what, what was surprising John is the blessings of the kingdom had come, but the judgment was delayed. That term, the coming one, was, was well known in first century Israel, it, it referred always to the Messiah and it related to the great Mosaic promise. It's in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. You know, the, the first century, the, jo- the Roman occupation was a time of particular anticipation of, of excitement and anxiety that God was about to send his Messiah at this particular time. And it, and it came, I think, because they lived under so much oppression and heavy burden. Did you know that the, the, the Romans who occupied Israel, they put such a heavy tax burden on them to pay for the very soldiers that were policing them that it was almost impossible for a typical uh, citizen in Israel to avoid debt. It wiped out the middle class because of really high taxes. Most were anticipating a Messiah who was going to overthrow this injustice, was going to get rid of the Romans. So it was so hard for so so many of them to recognize that Messiah had come. And then Jesus finishes this with, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Um, this is, verse has been called a, a little beatitude because of the blessed. It's a challenge, I think, for us to reexamine our presuppositions about how Jesus should work 
how he should work in us, how he should work around us. Um, what blinded the Pharisees was that they could not see beyond their assumptions. So just a, a little application of this. Watch out when you hear, well, this is how God works. Um, I think that's dangerous. I think it ties in with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago about inerrancy, that there's a rigidness. We know how God works. My wife, Christina, always says God is not a vending machine. If you hit A3, this is what you get. Jesus was speaking to John with kindness. John, bless you if you don't give up on me and the message, because I'm a different kind of Messiah than you were expecting, but I bless you. Well, let's move on, because now Jesus turns his attention to the crowd and talks about John the Baptist, starting at verse 7. As they went away, that's John's disciples, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What do you go out into the wild? What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then uh, did you go to see? Someone dressed in soft clothes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. And what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is, it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Perhaps Jesus spoke to the crowd about John in this way in order to disarm any suspicion uh, that his question, are you the coming one, uh, that any suspicion that it betrayed a wavering or a, a weakness. It, it wasn't based on that. It was, it was based on a misunderstanding of the nature of Messiah's mission. Jesus was telling the crowd, remember what you've seen in John's life and ministry. It's so easy for us to get spiritual amnesia, isn't it? He says, don't forget it. There was never any weakness in him. He never succumbed to uh, the numbing effects of, of uh, luxury. That's why he said that about the soft robes. He says, remember John's strength and courage. Remember his strength and courage were so great that it was enough for you to walk, some of you up to 70 uh, miles, to see him uh, in, uh, in Judea, which is where he was baptizing. Now, I continue week by week to draw from across church history. Uh, some of what I share today comes from reading 20th and 21st century uh, scholars, but I, I purposely continue to draw from ancient scholarship uh, and the, the church fathers because I want to lead us into a much broader river than many of us have known. And that's why I unapologetically, week by week, um, expose you to and introduce you to church fathers and their wisdom about these same passages. Gregory the Great said this, What does the reed, 
what did you expect to see? What did you think you were going to see? The, the, the reed waving. What does the reed represent if not an unspiritual soul? As soon as it is touched by praise or slander, it turns in every direction. If a slight breeze of commendation comes from someone's mouth, it is cheerful and proud, and it bends completely toward being pleasant. But if a gust of slander comes from the source from which the breeze of praise was coming, it is quickly turned in the opposite direction. John was no reed shaken by the wind. John the Baptist, Jesus is telling them, was more than a prophet because he was himself the object of Old Testament prophecy. Um, St. Ambrose saw prophetic fulfillment in every aspect of John's life, not just the message he said, you know, prepare the way of the Lord, but in every part of his life. Ambrose said this, the Lord is putting John before them as a model. John has prepared the way of the Lord, not only by the manner of his birth in the flesh and by his preaching of the faith, but also, in a certain way, by going before the Lord in his glorious passion. Again, I encourage us to go back to church fathers, to to look at some of the depths that have been gleaned and are waiting for us. Let's move on. Verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now pay attention to this verse. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven uh, has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. Jesus began to announce the kingdom precisely at the time when John was thrown into prison. The law and prophets were looking forward to something that was yet to come. They're set aside when the new thing, the kingdom, arrives. Remember we talked um, in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law. So, Israel's long history from the time of Abraham till Jesus' time was one long preparation. But now Jesus has announced the preparation is over. The reality has come. John was the greatest among the prophets, the preparers. But now those who hear and follow Jesus are greater because they are living the time of fulfillment. This this verse is about contrast of two eras. The preparative era, which is the Old Testament, and it culminated in John, and the fulfillment, the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. For all his greatness as a herald of Jesus and of the kingdom, John, along with all the Old Testament prophets, belongs to the old era. It's this is why the least in the kingdom are greater than John. It's not a meritorious thing. Bruner says this, If John is the greatest man ever born, and nevertheless, 
If the most insignificant person in the coming kingdom of heaven is greater than John, then what does this make Jesus, who is the bringer of that kingdom? Jesus is talking about John. Matthew is talking about Jesus. Readers are to think about God. That is the point. Now we're going to come to a really interesting verse. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. That's the New Revised Standard Version. But let me read the very same verse again in the New International Version. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. This verse is hugely debated among scholars. Is it that the kingdom is forcefully advancing and being taken by forceful people? Or is it that there is violent attack against the kingdom? If you were to pull out 10 different translations, you'd find about 50-50 between the forcefully advancing and forceful men reading or the has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Even among the church fathers, there were different interpretations. For Hillary, it, the violence is about the violence of rejecting the gospel because he understood that the gospel, it's like all of the cosmos is affected by and therefore hinges on the gospel. And so if it's rejected, it brings, it brings violence against everything. So here's what Hillary had to say. What violence? People did not believe in John the Baptist. The works of Christ were held to be of no importance. His torment on the cross was a stumbling block. The violent irony is that his own people rejected him while strangers accepted him. His own people speak ill of him while his enemies embrace him. The act of adoption offers an inheritance while the family rejects it. This is what is meant by the phrase, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The glory that was pledged to Israel by the patriarchs, which was announced by the prophets, which was offered by Christ, is now being seized and carried off by the Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. Clement sees it this way, Clement of Alexandria. And the kingdom of God belongs not to those who are sleeping and lazy, but forceful men seize it. For this is the only good force, to force God and seize life from God. You see, these two church fathers are each embracing the different reading, one from each. Now, for years, I have taught that forcefully advancing interpretation. And, and frankly, it, it, it reflects my bias toward pressing forward in mission and in ministry. But, but some transparency here, as I've studied this verse more closely than I ever have before over the last couple of weeks, I think that the correct understanding uh, is found in both sides. The kingdom is forcefully advancing. Jesus is watching his ministry growing throughout Galilee. It is going forward in both word and deed. But secondly... As it grows, opposition 
increases. The kingdom that John foretells and that Jesus brings suffers violence. John's present imprisonment and soon execution are strong evidence for a suffering interpretation. I think Matthew is speaking to the church in his day, and by extension ours. Remember, he was probably uh, part of the church in Antioch, and uh, uh, oh, a generation and a half after the events. And he's really encouraging them. He's saying, yes, church, you suffer greatly in many ways, um, but the church continues to grow like leaven. It can't be stopped. So here's some of the ways that violence came against the kingdom when Jesus was speaking. John's imprisonment, attacks from Jewish leaders are now beginning to intensify and they're going to just accelerate through his gospel. Another way it suffers violence is is the, the distortion of the messianic expectation in Israel, they were they were expecting a, a political and a military leader. But we're going to see in a few minutes at the end of the chapter that is not it's not the those aggressive zealots who want to see big change who are going to find rest and peace and satisfaction for their souls. It's the weary and the brokenhearted. Let me give you one more uh, church father. And this is the the water-to-wine reading. Just to remember, we've got the literal, the moral, and the spiritual or water-to-wine reading of what this means about kingdom, suffering violence, uh, violent men take hold of it, kingdom forcefully advancing. Ambrose said this, We now have to do violence to our nature so that it will not drown out uh, once more uh, sorry, so it will not drown once more in earthly things, but will lift itself up to the heights. He turns it and sees a deeper meaning. It's violence in our own nature we have to be willing to do. We're back to what we talked about last week, losing our lives in order to find it. Verse 13, Jesus says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came. Um Jesus is is coming to the Old Testament. Jesus coming is the Old Testament's point. The Old Testament's not a crystal ball of future events. Um, It's not a way that we're supposed to read it now in the 21st century to evaluate present events. The Old Testament prophets prophesied until John, Jesus said. It is exclusively, the Old Testament is about Christ coming and come. Our focus is Christ, folks, not on trying to figure out ancient predictions about future events. In my first decade as a believer, I I was presented with a a gospel, kind of a dispensational gospel that, that was looking at Old Testament stuff, whether it was whether it was Joel and saying, "Oh, those are those are American fighter jets coming over the mountains," or or whether it was um, Daniel and uh, the interpreting of the of the vision he had of the statue. No, the Old Testament points to Christ. See, the difference here is that for for the the rabbis, 
the Torah, the Old Testament, was essentially instruction. But for the early Christians, Scripture was prophecy of Christ and his church. And then Jesus says, and if you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. It's interesting. I I found out recently that, that in Orthodox Jewish homes at Passover, there's one empty chair at the table. That's for Elijah. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John is Elijah. This reveals something to me about how Jesus read his Bible, not rigidly. He had a great reverence for Scripture, but this reverence led uh, to a freedom in reading, letting the Spirit of God move through the words. Jesus is not saying that John is Elijah reincarnated. Uh, we know in Luke, when... Um, when uh, Elizabeth began to speak out a prophetic prayer, that that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah confronted Ahab and Jezebel. John confronted Herod and Herodias. Let's move on. Verse 16. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We wailed. You didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He's talking about a generation that is unwilling or unable to respond to his message. This generation has failed uh, to to even grasp what Jesus' ministry is, is about. And they did the same thing with John. They said, oh, he's too, he's too vigorous. He's too extreme. And then they're saying Jesus is not extreme enough. He's too inclusive. And yet they came. This is what I think Jesus is getting at. The overall result of both ministries is that, that they gathered. This is interesting. This is a happening. But, but it's largely been just passing interest and excitement till the next thing comes. There was no permanent change. There, there was more fascination than faith. We have to be so careful about this. I, I watch it, frankly, after all these years, I see it again and again. The latest thing, this is the thing. And, and that people swarm to it in conferences or in websites or whatever. I'm not saying don't go to a conference and don't read website, but there's this, this, this crowd, huh, crowdsourcing. There's this crowd momentum toward the latest thing, but no permanent change. You know, this is why I made a decision years ago, painfully, when the Lord spoke to me while I was on a platform in India with 50,000 people in front of me, and he said as clear as a bell to me, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm going to minister. And he said, I never told you to do this. I'm standing there in front of this massive crowd. I said, now you tell me? 
but it was his kindness. He had to break through. I had an old paradigm. Get as big a crowd as you can. Preach Christ. Have them raise their hand. I don't do large meetings anymore because I don't want what he's talking about here, this fascination, this kind of momentum. We're called to make disciples. Wherever we go with Impact Nations, we only, when we do an outdoor meeting, and purposely we tend to do them in anywhere between 300 and 800 people, we only do them when we've done the work ahead of time with our local partners and we've got disciples ready and they follow up with every single person and invite them into house church. That's an aside. But what we're looking for is is permanent life change not something that's passing and interesting. St. Cyril said this, John, who preached a baptism of repentance, was an example of self-effacement for those who ought to mourn for their sins. But Jesus, who preached the kingdom of heaven, displayed the splendor of joy found in himself, assuring the faithful that there will be a life of un troubled joy. He says at the end of this, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deed. Some of you may have wondered what that's. There's a reference back to Proverbs 8, but the most important thing is he's saying, look at the fruit of our lives, John and mine. Look at our words and our actions, and everything will come clear. Let's move on to a really interesting section, but we're going to move quickly. I'm not even going to read all of it, but uh, It's uh, 20 to 24. Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Karazin. Woe to you, Bethesda, Bethesda, Bethsaida, rather. Sorry, I looked at that twice. Woe to you, Bethsaida, and on and on. You know, a couple of things I want to point out because what we have here is Jesus as the coming judge There's no record of Jesus preaching judgment to Gentiles. His warnings are all reserved for the people of Israel. Jesus preached this message to the insiders, not the outsiders. Uh, It's the spiritually privileged that Jesus is speaking to. Um, And he spoke geographically, obviously, but to the places where he had done most of his miracles— This should seriously confront all believers who've had every opportunity to truly repent, to truly change your way of thinking. I want to just give you a simple question. Has the gospel that you and I, that we have had the privilege to have heard and witnessed And for many of us, week by week by week, gathering with believers, it's an incredible privilege. Is it still changing us? Is it still changing us? We've got believers in Afghanistan right now in the midst of the terrible turmoil who are staying true to Christ. It has changed them to the point that they're willing to die, and some of them may. Are we likewise willing to look at our hearts and say, has the gospel really changed me? He goes on to say, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon Sidon were two Phoenician cities. Uh, 
in the Old Testament, they're often the object of, of prophetic judgment. But now instead of judgment and woe, there's grace. And it's interesting. He, he said, if Tyre and Sidon had had what you'd had, they would have repented. Jesus knew what they would have done if they'd been given the opportunity to witness his works and words. Likewise, Jesus knows what every unreached person would have done given the opportunity. I find that very reassuring, especially as as one who's involved in evangelism and overseas mission. So we see Jesus as judge in these verses. Folks, it is a mistake to think that there will not be judgment for the followers of Jesus. I I'm still surprised how often I I discover people thinking that if they're believers, if they're in Christ, if they pray to sinner's prayer, whatever their measuring stick is, that somehow they bypass all judgment. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I want to take a moment from an article that our dear friend, uh, Dr. Bradley Jerzak wrote about this judgment. I'm going to just quote him directly. Rather than sweeping judgment under the rug, we can make the following assertions rooted in Scripture. An accounting of our lives. We believe that like the prophets before them, Christ and his apostles foretell a day of the Lord. On that day, we will all stand before Christ and give an account for the one life we had to live and have to offer to God. Number two, an assessment of our deeds. Standing before Christ involves an examination of our deeds, which tells us your life matters. This judgment of deeds is quite apart from the issue of saving faith in Christ for eternal life. Number three, the fire of cleansing. Forgiveness for sin was accomplished at the cross, period. Our guilt has been removed. But the stain of sin and all its consequences will also be purged when we meet Christ. Malachi prophesies that the refiner's fire will purge us of dross and bring out the gold of our true nature. I love that. He imagines a launderer's soap that will cleanse us of every stain. Similarly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the fire of judgment will consume the wood, hay, and stubble in our character. The central point of these verses 20 to 24 is this. Christians should take Jesus seriously. We'll move on from there. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom 
the Son chooses to reveal him. Now we see the contrast to the religious, to the self-satisfied, to those who reject the gospel, there's judgment. But to the weak and the weary, the brokenhearted, the poor in spirit, there's comfort. You know, what he just said about about revealing to the childlike, this connects back to, to the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, the humble, the small. He's going to say further on in this gospel, uh, chapter 18, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, uh, chapter 19, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. Matthew continues, I just want to point out three things here. Matthew continues to focus his reader back to the father-son connection. By far more than any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is Jesus' first address, by the way, of God as Father. He's talked about Father, but this is the first time he says Father. Matthew is showing a, a stark contrast, secondly. Uh, there's, there's a contrast with those towns who'd refuse to receive and recognize Jesus. But now, those to whom the truth of who Christ is has been revealed and received. And thirdly, we see Jesus' complete delight in the Father's will. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. I want to look closely at this verse, 27. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one knows the Son except the Father, and and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. St. Hilary said this, By this revelation, Jesus showed that the same essence of both Father and Son existed in their knowledge of each other. One who could know the Son would also know the Father in his Son, because everything was handed down to him from the Father. Thus, in this mystery of mutual knowledge, it is understood that nothing else existed in the Son than what was known to be in the Father. This verse is one of the most powerful and important Christological passages in Matthew's Gospel. Christological means revealing the mystery of Christ. It's about the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's experiential. It's deep knowledge of each other. It's not knowing about. And this relationship is unique in all of the universe. It is inseparable. It's indivisible. After declaring that the Father gives true understanding to the the childlike or the little ones, Jesus now adds that he is the exclusive agent of that revelation. Only Jesus has come. Only Jesus can come to reveal the Father. This is, besides being the most Christological, it is also one of the most offensive verses to other religions and to the non-religious. For them, Jesus' exclusive claim is scandalous. But for us, as the church, we must carry this offense if we want to be faithful witnesses to the revelation of the gospel. And of course, we all know this is a time where where we're pressed against on this. There are not many, many ways to the Father. There's one. 
Jesus Christ. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. We're going to finish with with a wonderful, gracious passage, but he's the only way to the Father. Verse 28 to 30, Then Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. <laughs> I just said that from memory, and I realized the wording slightly different than the translation I gave you, but it's from memory because I have loved this passage. I love this passage since I first encountered Christ. This is both the promised rest in the midst of their present reality, but it's also eschatological, final rest. Revelation 14, 13. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. When he says, come to me, it's like a counterbalance that Matthew's giving us to verse 27, where he says, only the ones to whom the Son chooses uh, come to the Father. This isn't restrictive. It's open to all. The only requirement is to recognize our need for help. The wise and intelligent uh, may ignore this, but the little children know their need. And when he talks about heavy burdens, it's a metaphor. Of course, Jesus speaks so much in metaphor. We've talked about that before. But it's either a metaphor for for difficulties and pressures of this life, or it may be more pointed toward the religious system uh, dominated by by the Pharisees and the scribes. Matthew 23, 4, he's going to say this, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. So I think it's a metaphor for the legal and ethical demands made by the religious leaders, but also for just the burden on life. I said I've always loved this passage. I was thinking about it this morning. Why do I love it so much? And I started to jot some things down, and it just kept coming and coming and coming. I thought I'd finished preparing for this, but I love it because it stirs in me a fresh love for Jesus. And I love him because he first loved me while I was yet a sinner, Romans 5.8. It stirs a love for me every time. It it brings in me a deep appreciation that he's invited me into a family of outsiders, of broken. I don't have to have it all together. I still remember that the amazement of that in the in when I embraced Christ and the gospel. It seemed too good to be true. I I don't have to have it all together, and I'm surrounded by people who don't have it all together. This passage brings me comfort when I need it. Often I think of this passage, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. And his words point me toward my ultimate destination, an eternity, eternity spent with him in the company, the eternal company of of brothers and sisters across time. These words express Jesus' unlimited inclusion. This is 
thematic through the Old and New Testament. Isaiah 55, is anyone thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Come with your ears wide open. If anyone has ears, let them listen. Let them hear, right? He says, listen and you'll find life. I will give you all the unfailing love that I promised to David. This is the inclusive gospel. This is why Jesus stood up on the last day of the of the feast of the festival in John 7 and said, Come unto me. Anyone who thirsts may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. The invitation is for everyone, anyone who is thirsty. You know, this is why when I do outreach in various countries, as I'm standing there, I will often, as I'm inviting people to come forward, I know there's others standing back and they've excluded themselves. It's a self-exclusion. I don't qualify. I've messed up too much. Whatever the reason is. And I always say, you come too. This is for you. You come too. And to be honest, when they hear it, they come. It's the power of the gospel. And you know, Matthew is, in these words, he, he's emphasizing the motivation of Jesus' life. Remember in chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So let's wrap this up very briefly. The gospel is for all, for all who will respond to the incredible truth of his invitation. That's why he said, it is finished. It is finished. It's done, and it's for everybody. It's not for everybody who will pray a certain prayer or do a certain thing. It's already done. The restoration of all things. He's in all things. This is an invitation that puts all our expectations upside down. Because we've been trained our whole lives that we've, we've got to earn things. We've got to do it right. Avoid doing it wrong. But it turns everything. This is a radical gospel. That's why I love in the Magnificat, that, that song that Mary sang in the beginning of uh, uh, in Luke chapter 1. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has brought down, folks, the economic princes, the power princes, the religious princes, everyone who trusts in themselves. This good news is for everyone. But as we saw a few minutes ago, it's also serious business. It requires a response. It really requires us to be like the prodigal son who came to the end of himself, came to the end of himself, and came home. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. God bless you. We're going to meet in a minute or so with Tim and just discuss a little bit of what I've shared today. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, we got through a whole chapter in only one episode. That's that's pretty good. <laughs> I, I only slid into the guardrails twice. <laughs> 
Um, I, I do have some questions for you, but I wanted to just quick uh, touch base with our listeners on something. Uh, as you know, we have for the last 18 months or so been feeding the hungry around the world as a result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, you've heard us talk about it lots here in this place. Uh, because of lockdowns and things like that, economies have shut down uh, and people are really suffering. One of the things that Richard said to me, and I had to clarify with him, he used this phrase, and I may be repeating myself here, but he, he talked about the new poor. Because uh, mm-hmm. I said, you know, they, they had a, a lockdown that was implemented for about five weeks in July. It was lifted in August. And I said, hey, does that mean things are back up and running and things are good? He said, no. He says, we've got this whole segment of what we're calling the new poor. And I said, well, what do you mean the new poor? He said, well, these are people who were making it okay a year ago. Uh, and and even a few months ago, they had a job or they had their own small business and things were okay. They were able to provide for their families. But since this most recent lockdown was so harsh, uh, their employer has shut down, gone bankrupt, whatever. Uh, their own business has gone bankrupt. They had to um, basically sell anything they had to eat and they're left with nothing. And th- these are folks who, he said, are, were accustomed to being able to provide for their families. He said, yeah. it's so heartbreaking to see these men. You know, we saw a video, actually, of, a, of one man who had come to our feeding center in Kalanga, Uganda. He was holding his machete, which was his tool, you know, he, and he said, look, I, I have tools. I'm ready to work. Please, somebody put me to work. He says, this is wonderful. Thank you for feeding me. But i got a whole family, wife and children back home that I have to provide for, and I want to provide for them. I'm ready to work, and there's nothing. Uh, and so he took a few small meals, whatever he could carry with him, and he went back to his own village. But uh, we're hearing from Richard that this is happening yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and so the need is still really great. The Impact Nation's family, truth be told, has been unbelievably faithful in the last 18 months. Uh, our count is at 2,390-something thousand meals right now since March 26th of 2020. Um, you guys have been incredibly faithful, uh, but we can't give up. We can't stop. I, I wish it weren't so, but the need is still great. If you head to impactnations.com slash feeding, uh, you can give today. We are seeing inflation uh, around the world. I mean, we're seeing it here in the United States too, but certainly in these <clears throat> nations, meals yeah. are getting more expensive, but we're still able to do it pretty cheap. Uh, generally speaking, for about a quarter, you can provide a meal. So uh, I'll let you do the math on, on how much you want to give and how many meals you want to provide. But impactnations.com slash feeding, whatever you can give. By the way, that those funds, 100% of them go directly to feeding. We cover the cost of the credit card charges. We cover the cost of wire transfer fees to get them there. Uh, and our partners are incredibly quick in turning that into food, getting it onto people's tables. So yeah. uh, please give us a help. Uh, we can do this together at impactnations.com slash feeding. All right. Now, Matthew 11. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I wanted to touch on, if you could just spend a little bit more time on it, you talked about uh, see and hear and and really equated that to the, like the gospel must be both demonstrated and proclaimed. Yes. And we got to find that balance. Yes. And that's something we talk about a lot here, uh, right in our mission statement is like, we are going to demonstrate the gospel both supernaturally and practically. We're going to preach the gospel. What's the... 
What's the risk on either side? What's the bigger risk? Is it is the bigger risk that we're going to get all into demonstration and forget to proclaim the gospel? Or is the risk that we're going to get so much into proclaiming the gospel we forget to demonstrate the good news? Well, I think uh, historically mm-hmm. the weight is much more on uh, preaching the gospel and mm-hmm. not demonstrating yeah. it. Um, and I've said many a time, if if talking would do it, it would have been done a long time ago. Yeah. On the other hand, one of the things we do um, is teach people. I'm going to be teaching some folks this week on um, a model of how to how to pray for the sick effectively. But we teach them once the person's healed, tell them who healed them, yeah, <laughs> and tell them that was that was Jesus uh, touching you right now in your back. Mm-hmm. But he wants to come and be with you. He wants you to experience him with you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's for us at Impact Nations, I I tend to think that we – the thing we have to reinforce is the proclamation. Sometimes we can – especially in our ongoing programs such as skills and business and stuff – is to remind our partners, remind one another we can't stop – proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's it would be easy to just do the programs, you know, yep. get the food to the poor, get the the training uh, to those in who need to become more self-sustained, but forget to build in discipleship, to forget to say, "Hey, it's Jesus who is bringing this meal to you." Um and so we work pretty closely with our partners. I know you have been on the phone recently uh, as our teams in Colombia were getting ready to distribute those 31,000 meals. Uh, and and so you were just reinforcing with our partners again, like, hey, don't forget why we do what we do. And don't forget to remind the, the recipients of these these food packages of who it is really who is bringing the food. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right. You mentioned the Church Fathers and just reminded us again why it's so important to go back and uh, familiarize ourselves with, with what they've had to say on these things. You, I happen to know, have a very large library of stuff from the Church Fathers, and we've all been benefiting from that this season on the podcast. But I wondered, those who have heard these quotes and are just like, oh, one more of that, do you have a, a like a single resource or something you could direct people to, or wow, maybe like a great. starter uh, starter resource for yeah. exposure to the Church Fathers? I didn't Fathers? know you were going to ask me that, but um, uh, Christopher A. Hall mm-hmm. Reading the scriptures with the church fathers. Okay, it's a great start. Yeah, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. So we there's a shortcut to that um, in Amazon or something like that, so folks can find it. But because uh, I suspect there's a few people who'd like to just get something on their on their shelf, but maybe not like the Encyclopedia Britannica version that you've got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I was really glad you addressed uh, the. The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing mm. and forceful men will lay hold of it or is suffering m- violence, suffering violence. Uh, and I really loved how you kind of almost embraced both and said, hey, maybe it is both at the same time here. Um, I, it got me thinking about the persecution of the church in terms of kingdom advancement and and how so often those two things really do go hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, where in those nations where there is so much persecution, and in fact, at times the gospel has just been made outright illegal, and yet the church seems to advance the most quickly there, uh, and 
we see, you know, the underground church just exploding in some nations and stuff. Why? And why doesn't the church advance as rapidly where there isn't persecution? Boy, that's a great question. Um, to which I wish I had a great answer. <laughs> you know, uh, proportionately, uh, in terms of ratio, mm-hmm. uh, the church grew fastest in the first 300 years mm. when it was persecuted. Yeah. After 313, persecution ends, slows down in the growth. Why? I think <laughs> it's this. I, and you know I work closely with persecuted Christians mm-hmm. in Asia. Yeah. I think it's because they know that when they come to Christ, it they're all, they're all in. They've got to be all in yeah. to survive, yeah. really. Um, and so people have already paid a price mm-hmm. in their mind, in their determination, in their hearts, that when there's persecution, that's... Um, not a surprise, and they realize they're following Christ. Yeah. When we're not in an environment that is socially, economically, politically um, challenging, disadvantageous, then I think it's so easy for the gospel to move away from the center of our lives mm. and become an important spoke in our lives, but move away. Yeah. And so I think it's that, again, as I spend time, you know, in the Asian country I particularly work in, they know when they say yes to Jesus, they're all in because they know what it's going to cost. But because of that, they're passionate because they're all in, right? Yeah. And so they become... Disciples who disciple who disciple. Yeah. It's the passion. Hmm. Good. All right. One last question. I'm looking at the time, but I, I want to squeeze in one more, and maybe it's a really short answer, or maybe it's just too big of a question, and you can you can say we'll do it later. But uh, verse 27 uh, hmm. finishes with, No one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And I that just that phrase always kind of bumps up against me, those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Like, does Jesus choose not to reveal the son to some people? That's a weird thing to say. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think this is a classic of where we have to look at the the larger context of mm-hmm. what Jesus and the gospel is about. I mean, we know, we know in the epistles it's not God's desire that anyone should perish. Indeed. Well, and you finished up today by saying again and again how inclusive this gospel is. Yes. But that that is a challenge for us. And it could be, I don't know, it could be that as Jesus was saying this and Matthew was recording it, mm-hmm. that it's a little bit like a first cousin to rhetoric. It was a, hey, this is important now. And um, cho- you want me to choose that you have this. Right. And yeah. right now what I'm telling you is the evidence of my choosing mm-hmm. that I want you to know the right. Father. Yeah. Like So it, perhaps a slightly different translation might read, hey, you only see the Father through me because I, ch- I chose to reveal him. Like you're seeing it now, and that was, that was my choice. Like, yeah. I chose to come to this place today to reveal the Father to you. And a couple of translations said, say desire mm. not choose wow um 
So I think that may be it. Yeah. There, he's stirring people. He's, you know, he happens to be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and and he he knows when to comfort. He knows when to challenge. Here we see the clearest clearest example, don't we, of of Jesus as judge yeah. that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And I want people to take it seriously. Yeah. And we're in an era. I, you know, I love the beautiful gospel. You know, I love the grace mm-hmm. of God. But that doesn't mean I'm casual about it. Yeah. I'm never ever casual, and we must not be casual about our faith. Indeed. Yeah. Good. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, We will see you again next week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. We're here every week at that time. Uh, We'd love to see you live at YouTube or uh, Facebook. We're in both places at 3 p.m. on Thursdays. Uh, Otherwise, be sure to get the audio delivered directly to your uh, device so that that just comes to you and you can listen to that on your way into work. Um, If you have any questions for us, by the way, uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can write us at info at at impactnations.com or just throw them into the uh, chat as uh, as we're recording the episode and we'll be sure to follow up on those. So. That's great. Thanks so much. Have a great week.